This is Mary Christopher, and this is Storytime. This evening we are reading Chapter 6, From the Sword in the Stone, which is a story about King Arthur when he was a young boy and Merlin was his tutor. One Thursday afternoon, the boys were doing their archery as usual. There were two straw targets 50 yards apart. And when they had shot their arrows at one, they had only to go to it, collect them, and shoot back at the other after facing about. It was still the loveliest summer weather, and there had been chicken for dinner so that Merlin had gone off to the edge of their shooting ground and sat down under a tree. What with the warmth and the chicken and the cream he had poured over the chicken, he had poured over his pudding and the continual repassing of the boys and the talk of the arrows in the targets, which was as sleepy to listen to as the noise of a lawnmower or of a village cricket match. And what with the dance of the egg-shaped sunspots between the leaves of his tree? The aged man was soon fast asleep. Archery was a serious occupation in those days. It had not yet been turned over to Indians and small boys. When you were shooting badly, you got into a bad temper just as the wealthy pheasant shooters do today. Kay was shooting badly. He was trying too hard and plucking at his loose instead of saving it to the bow. Oh, come on, he said. I am sick of these beastly targets. Let's have a shot at the popinjay. They left the targets and had several shots at the popinjay, which was a large brightly colored artificial bird stuck on the top of a stick like a parrot. And Kay missed these also. First he had a feeling of, well, I will hit the filthy thing even if I have to go without my tea until I do. Then he merely became bored. Dwart said, let's play rovers then. We can come back in half an hour and wake Merlin up. What they called rovers consisted in going for a walk with their bows and shooting one arrow each at any agreed mark, which they came across. Sometimes it would be a mole hill, sometimes a clump of rushes, sometimes a big thistle almost at their feet. They varied the distance at which they chose these objects, sometimes picking a target as much as 120 yards away, which was about as far as these boys' bows could carry. And sometimes having to aim actually below a close thistle because the arrow always leaps up at a foot or two as it leaves the bow. They counted five for a hit, and one if the arrow was within a bow's length, and they added up their scores at the end. 
On this Thursday, they chose their targets wisely. Besides, the grass of the big field had been cut lately, so they never had to search for their arrows for long, which nearly always happens, as in golf, if you shoot ill-advisedly near hedges or in rough places. The result was that they strayed further than usual and found themselves near the edge of the savage forest where Cully had been lost. I vote, said Kay, that we go for those buries in the chase and see if we can get a rabbit. It would be more fun than shooting at these hummocks. They did this. They chose two trees about a hundred yards apart and each boy stood under one of them, waiting for the coonies to come out. They stood still with their bows already raised and arrows fitted so that they would make the least possible movement to disturb the creatures when they did appear. It was not difficult for either of them to stand thus, for the first test which they had had to pass in archery was standing with the bow at arm's length for half an hour. They had six bows each, six arrows each, and would be able to fire and mark them all before they needed to frighten the rabbits back by walking about to collect. An arrow does not make enough noise to upset more than the particular rabbit that it is shot at. At the fifth shot, Kay was lucky. He allowed just the right amount for wind and distance and his point took a young coney square in the head. It had been standing up on end to look at him, wondering what he was. Oh, well shot, cried the wart, as they ran to pick it up. It was the first rabbit they had ever hit, and luckily they had killed it dead. When they had carefully gutted it with the hunting knife, which Merlin had given to keep it fresh, and passed one of its hind legs through the other at the hawk for convenience in carrying, the two boys prepared to go home with their prize. But before they unstrung their bows, they used, used to observe a, a ceremony. Every Thursday afternoon, after the last serious arrow had been shot. They were allowed to fit one more knock to their strings and to shoot the arrow straight up into the air. It was partly a gesture of farewell, partly of triumph, and it was beautiful. They did it now as a salute to their first prey. The wart watched his arrow go up. The sun was already westing toward evening, and the trees where they were had plunged them into a partial shade. So, as the arrow topped the trees and climbed into sunlight, it began to burn against the evening like the sun itself. Up and up it went, 
not weaving as it would have done with a snatching loose, but soaring, swimming, aspiring to heaven, steady, golden, and superb. Just as it had spent its force, just as its ambition had been dimmed by destiny, and it was preparing to faint, to turn over, to pour back into the bosom of its mother earth, a portent happened. A gore crow came flapping wearily before the approaching night. It came, it did not waver. It took the arrow. It flew away heavy and hoisting with the arrow in its beak. Kay was frightened by this, but the wart was furious. He had loved his arrow's movement, its burning ambition in the sunlight, and besides, it was his best one. It was the only one which was perfectly balanced, sharp, tight-feathered, clean-knocked, and neither warped nor scraped. It was a witch, said Kay. Chapter 7 Tilting and horsemanship had two afternoons a week because they were the most important branches of a gentleman's education in those days. Merlin grumbled about athletics, saying that nowadays people seem to think that you were an educated man if you could knock another man off a horse, and that the craze for games was the ruin of scholarship. Nobody got scholarships like they used to do when he was a boy, and all the public schools had been forced to lower their standards. But Sir Hector, who was an old tilting blue, said that the Battle of Crecy had been won upon the playing fields of Camelot. This made Merlin so furious that he gave Sir Hector rheumatism two nights running before he relented. Tilting was a great art and needed practice. When two knights jousted, they held their lances in their right hands, but they directed their horses at one another so that each man had his opponent on his near side. The base of the lance, in fact, was held on the opposite side of the body to the side at which the enemy was charging. This seems rather inside out to anybody who is in the habit, say, of opening gates with a hunting crop. But it had its reasons. For one thing, it meant that the shield was on the left arm, so that the opponents charged shield to shield, fully covered. It also meant that a man could be unhorsed with the side or edge of the lance, in a kind of horizontal swipe, if you did not feel sure of hitting him with your point. This was the humblest or least skillful blow in jousting. 
A good jouster like Lancelot or Tristan always used the blow of the point because although it was liable to miss in unskillful hands, it made contact sooner. If one knight charged with his lance held rigidly sideways to sweep his opponent out of the saddle, the other knight with his lance held directly forward would knock him down a lance length before the sweep came into effect. Then there was how to hold the lance for the point stroke. It was no good crouching in the saddle and clutching it in a rigid grip preparatory to the great shock, for if you held it inflexible like this, its point bucked up and down at every movement of your thundering mount and you were practically certain to miss the aim. On the contrary, you had to sit loosely in the saddle with the lance easily, easy and balanced against the horse's motion. It was not until the actual moment of striking that you clamped your knees into the sword's sides, threw your weight forward in your seat, clutched the lance, with the whole hand instead of with the finger and thumb and hugged your right elbow to your side to support the butt. There was the size of the spear. Obviously, a man with a spear 100 yards long would strike down an opponent with a spear 10 or 12 feet before the latter came anywhere near him but it would have been impossible to make a spear 100 yards long, and if made, impossible to carry it. The jouster had to find out the greatest length which he could manage with the greatest speed, and he had to stick to that. Sir Lancelot, who came some time after this part of the story, had several sizes of spear and would call for his great spear or his lesser spear as occasion demanded. There were the places on which the enemy should be hit in the armory of the castle of the forest sauvage. There was a big picture of a knight in armor with circles round his vulnerable points. These varied with the style of armor so that you had to study your opponent before the charge and select a point. The good armorers, the best lived at Warrington and still lived near there, were careful to make all the forward or entering sides of their suits convex so that the spear point glanced off them. Curiously enough, the shields of Gothic suits were more inclined to be concave. It was better that a spear point should stay on the shield rather than glance off upward or downward and perhaps hit a more vulnerable point of the body armor. The best place of all for hitting people was on the very crest of the tilting helm. That is, if the person in question were vain enough to have a large metal crest in whose folds and ornaments the point would find a ready lodging. 
Many were vain enough to have these armorial crests with bears and dragons or even ships or castles on them. But Sir Lancelot always contented himself with a bear helmet or a bunch of feathers which would not hold spears or on one occasion a soft lady's sleeve. It would take too long to go into all the interesting details of proper tilting which the boys had to learn, for in those days you had to be a master of your craft from the bottom upward. You had to know what wood was best for spears and why and even how to turn them so they would not splinter or warp. There were a thousand disputed questions about arms and armor, all of which had to be understood. Just outside Sir Hector's castle, there was a jousting field for tournaments, although there had been no tournaments in it since Kay was born. It was a green meadow kept short with a broad grassy bank raised round it on which pavilions could be erected. There was an old wooden grandstand on one side, lifted on stilts for the ladies. At present, the field was only used as a practice ground for tilting. So a quintain had been erected at one end and a ring at the other. The quintain was a wooden Saracen on a pole. He was painted with a bright yellow face and a red beard and glaring eyes. He had a shield in his left hand and a flat wooden sword on his right. If you hit him in the middle of his forehead, all was well. But if your lance struck him on the shield or any part to left or right of the middle line, then he spun round with a great rapidity, with great rapidity and usually caught you a wallop with his sword as you galloped by ducking. His paint was somewhat scratched and the wood picked up over his right eye. The ring was just an ordinary iron ring tied to a kind of gallows by a thread. If you managed to put your point through the ring, the thread broke and you could canter off proudly with the ring around your spear. The day was cooler than it had been for some time, for the autumn was almost within sight. And the two boys were in the tilting yard with the master armorer and Merlin. The master armorer, or sergeant at arms, was a stiff, pale, bouncy gentleman with waxed mustaches. He always marched about with his chest stuck out like a powder pigeon. And he called out, on the word, one, on every possible occasion. He took great pains to keep his stomach in and often tripped over his feet because he could not see them over his chest. He was generally making his muscles rippled, which annoyed Merlin. Wart lay beside Merlin in the shade of the grandstand and scratched himself for harvest bugs. The saw-like sickles had only lately been put away, 
and the wheat stood in stalks of eight among the tall stubble of those times. The wart still itched. He was also sore about the shoulders and had a burning ear for making boss shots at the quintain, for, of course, practice tilting was done without armor. Wart was pleased that it was Kay's turn to go through it now, and he lay drowsily in the shade, snoozing, scratching, twitching like a dog, and partly attending to the fun. Merlin, sitting with his back to all the athleticism, was practicing a spell which he had forgotten. It was a spell to make the sergeant's moustaches uncurl. But at present it only uncurled one of them, and the sergeant had not noticed it. His absent-minded, his, he absent-mindedly curled it up again every time Merlin did the spell. And Merlin said, Drat it! and began again. Once he made the sergeant's ears flat by mistake, and the latter gave a startled look at the sky. From far off to the other side of the tilting ground, the sergeant's voice came floating on the still air. Nah, nah, Master K, that ain't it at all. Has you were, has you were. The spear should be held between the thumb and the forefinger of the right hand, with the shield in line with the seam of the trouser leg. The wart rubbed his sore ear and sighed. What are you grieving about? I was not grieving, I was thinking. What were you thinking? Oh, it was not anything. I was thinking about Kay learning to be a knight. And well, you may grieve, exclaimed Merlin hotly. A lot of brainless unicorns swaggering about, calling themselves educated just because they can push each other off a horse with a bit of stick makes me tired. Why, I believe Sir Hector would have been gladder to get a by-your-leave lady tilting blue for your tutor that swings himself along on his knuckles like an anthropoid ape rather than a magician of known probity and international reputation with first-class honors from every European university. The trouble with Norman aristocracy is that they are games mad. That is what it is, games mad. He broke off indignantly and deliberately made the sergeant's ears flap slowly twice in unison. I was not thinking quite about that, said the wart. As a matter of fact, I was thinking how nice it would be to be a knight like Kay. Oh, you will be one soon enough, won't you? asked the old man impatiently. Wart did not answer. Won't you? Merlin turned round and looked closely at the boy through his spectacles. What is the matter now? he inquired nasally. His inspection had shown him that his pupil was trying not to cry, and if he spoke in a kind voice, he would break down and do it. I shall not be a knight, replied the wart coldly, 
Merlin's trick had worked, and he no longer wanted to weep. He wanted to kick Merlin. I shall not be a knight, because I am not a proper son of Sir Hector's. They will knight Kay, and I shall be his squire. Merlin's back was turned again, but his eyes were bright behind his spectacles. Too bad, he said, without commiseration. The wart burst out with all his thoughts aloud. Oh, he cried, but I should have liked to be born with a proper father and mother so that I could be a knight errant. What would you have done? I should have had a splendid arm, suit of armor and dozens of spears and a black horse standing 18 hams. And I should have called myself the Black Knight. And I should have hoved at a well or a ford or something and made all true knights that came that way to joust with me for the honor of their ladies. And I should have spared them all after I had given them a great fall. And I should have lived out of doors all the year round in a pavilion and never do anything but joust and go on quests and bear away the prize at tournaments. And I should never ever tell anybody my name. Your wife would scarcely enjoy the life. Oh, I'm not going to have a wife. I think they're stupid. I shall have a lady love, though, said the future knight uncomfortably, so that I can wear her favor in my helm and do deeds in her honor. A humblebee came zooming between them under the grandstand and out into the sunlight. Would you like to see some real knights errant? asked the magician. Now, for the sake of your education? Oh, I would. We have never even had a tournament since I was here. I suppose it could be managed. Oh, please do. You could take me to some... You could take me to some like you did to the fish. I suppose it is educational in a way. It is very educational, said the wart. I can't think of anything more educational than to see some real knights fighting. Oh, wouldn't you please do it? Do you prefer any particular knight? King Pellinore, he said immediately. He had a weakness for this gentleman since their strange encounter in the forest. Merlin said, that will do very well. Put your hands to your sides and relax your muscles. Shut your eyes and keep them shut. Bonus, bona, bonum. Here we go. Deus sanctus estne arato, aratio, Latinas, here we are. While this incantation was going on, the patient, the patient felt some queer sensations. First, he could hear the sergeant calling out to Kay. Nah, then, nah, then. Keep the eels down and swing the body from the ips. 
Then the words got smaller and smaller, as if he were looking at his feet through the wrong end of a telescope and began to swirl round in a cone, as if they were at the pointed bottom end of a whirlpool, which was sucking him into the air. Then there was nothing but a loud, rotating, roaring, and hissing noise, which rose to such a tornado that he felt that he could not stand it any more. Finally, there was utter silence, and Merlin saying, Here we are. All this happened in about the time that it took to take a six-penny rocket to start off with its fiery swish, bend down from its climax, and disperse itself in thunder and colored stars. He opened his eyes just at the moment when one would have heard the invisible stick hitting the ground. They were lying under a beech tree in the forest sauvage. Here we are, said Merlin, get up and dust your clothes. And there, I think, continued the magician in a tone of satisfaction because his spells had worked for once without a hitch. <coughs> and there is your friend King Pellinore pricking toward us o'er the plain. And later this week, we will finish chapter seven with King Pellinore and jousting like real knights. Have a wonderful week. Have a wonderful New Year's Eve. And we are definitely hoping for a wonderful new year. So take really good care of yourself, read great books, and, and remember to smile. Thanks for listening. <laughs>